Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Great leadership involves a really complex set of demands, and I find often ones that are in conflict with each other. So, and this is one of the themes that I believe is sort of the heart and soul of what makes for great leadership at the end of the day is coming to terms with these paradoxical dimensions where on the one hand you do one thing and on the other hand you need to do the complete opposite. And we're going to talk today about eight of the biggest paradoxes that leaders have to learn to balance to be truly exceptional. And then we're going to turn briefly, at least, maybe we won't get as much detail on it as we would like, on a more recent paradox. And that's the issue of trying to manage and understand multiple generations at work, where you're trying to be fair to all, you're trying to give everybody some of what they need and expect, and at the same time, you're trying to drive performance. And that makes, I think, a three-way paradox with multiple stakeholders a little bit difficult to do. So my guest today is Dr. Tim Elmore. He's founder and CEO of Global Growing Leaders. Excuse me, you'll find out about them at growingleaders.com. It's an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization created to develop emerging leaders. Now, his work grew out of 20 years serving alongside John Maxwell, and I'm sure you've seen any number of John's books out there, highly cited and in just about every airport around the world, I might add. Uh, Tim has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, Psychology Today, and he's been featured on all the classic business channels that you would expect, like CNN News or Fox Business. And he's also on his own written 35 books, including Habitudes, which are images that form leadership habits and attitudes. The one we're going to talk about today, The Eight Paradoxes of Leadership, and his latest, A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Wanda, it's good to be with you. It was fun to chat yesterday just a bit, and so it's going to be fun to have a conversation today with you in front of others. Fantastic. I am looking forward to it. Absolutely, totally. Um, And I know we have so many things to do about 35 books just overwhelms me to begin with. But let's start with this paradox idea, because it's the thing that I think is the most difficult to understand, yeah, and yeah, yet yeah. the single biggest ingredient for leaders to get their handle on. Yeah, and yeah. it's as if you have to pull to hold two polar opposites true yeah. simultaneously. Now, we're not talking about ethical decisions or right. telling the truth or not telling the truth. We're talking about more behaviors, leadership behaviors. And my favorite one, just to kick this off, is at times with people, you need to be very direct and very candid, very to the point, very sharp even. And if you do that all the time, it's going to get you in deep trouble. So balancing the candid or the direct with the diplomatic, the sensitive, Mm -hmm. we're too sensitive and people don't hear the message. So it's a tough balancing act. And I swear you could look at every attribute of great leaders and say, it's a balancing act. Mm -hmm. So Obviously, you think that, but how did you come to this notion of these particular eight paradoxes? 
Yeah, it's it's a good question. And there probably are a myriad of answers, but I think of two that really pushed me toward researching this. Um, one is um, in a 2021 survey by Strategy And, they surveyed 515 employees all around the world. And the respondents in this survey placed high importance on a leader's ability to balance the paradoxical demands, like you mentioned, of their of their job. But get this, just as many said, I express low confidence that my leader is going to be able to do this. So they recognize we live in a complex world. We really need this from our leader, but I don't think he or she is going to be able to do it. That's troubling to me. In other words, this is what we need. I don't think Bob's going to be able to do it. You know, that yeah. sort of thing. But something much more personal, Wanda, I was just before the quarantine in 2020, I was sitting in a green room with um, a total of 16 CEOs. We were all going to speak that day at this event. And I decided to turn this community into a little focus group. So I got their attention and I said, I got a big question. I said, do you all think that leading people today is harder than it was when you first learned to lead? And I thought I would get a mixture of answers because there was men and women, old and young. But you know what? Every single person said harder today without without any exception. And I kind of pushed back. I said, now, that's weird. Wouldn't you think many of you would say it was harder back in the day when I didn't know what I was doing, you know, but they stuck to their guns. They said, nope, it's harder today. And that sent me on a hunt. What is it that makes it more complicated? And I think it is. I've been leading now for 44 years. It is. And it led me to these eight. There may be 800, but I found eight that are really, really common that we've got to juggle. And it's a both and world, not an either or world. So I'll stop there. But that's really the impetus behind the behind the book. It is a both and. And I, you know, I think so many, I see so many people who have a belief that X is the right thing to do, you know, and I'm just not going to deviate from that. And if I do that, everything will be great. And then you find not in every situation doesn't work. And the whole premise of this entire podcast out of the comfort zone is really about getting rid of some of the things that your natural comforts and predispositions. One in particular we talk about is the need to be in the details, know the facts, be the expert, and on the other hand, rise above the details, not yes. know them, and be on the bigger picture of the strategy or whatever you want to call it, looking across domains of knowledge. Yes, no doubt about it. So I have a story. Uh, this particular paradox, the one that came to mind anyway, was I think uh, great leaders are both inherently collective, but deeply personal. So in other words, they see the big picture. And when they open their mouth, everybody gets it. Boy, she sees the big picture here. But then they're able to be personal. So quick story. I was um, on the platform at a conference, and I was going to speak right after the president gave his annual review. Uh, And by the way, when he stepped up to the podium, you could tell this guy was articulate, dressed to the nines, everything was in place. And he gave the graphs and the charts and the, I mean, you you could tell when he shared the data, man, this guy, glad he's in charge. He knows what he's talking about. But Wanda, I'll never forget, after he finished sharing the data, he took off his glasses, like I'm doing right now, he took off his glasses and he stepped from behind the podium And it was just a moment and it was all quiet. And he said, now, team, I'd be kidding myself if I felt like I ran point and I did all this work. Kelly, 
you guys crushed it in marketing this year. What you did last September, I'll never forget it. Blah, 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 blah. Bob, you guys, oh my goodness. You know, and he just started citing names of individuals as if he was in the room when they did that. Well, yeah. tears are coming down their faces. In fact, I look at the sound guy. He's crying at the soundboard. <laughs> and at the end, everybody leaps to their feet, including the sound guy standing ovation. I'm standing up, standing ovation. And here's why I was. He was a collect, he was inherently collective. I want right. you to know I get the data. I've got the big picture. But he communicated, I see your story. Mm -hmm. And I know your story. And I know the struggle. And I appreciate you for doing this. And I love you for doing this. If we can do that, and by the way, aren't we usually good at one or the other? You know, it's, I'm really good with the data, I'm really good with the personal details, but we don't thank you. So um, I just believe in today's world, if we're going to flourish, we got to balance both of these. Right. I think that's so hard because one is natural. It's a predisposition. Yeah. It's probably what made you get to the level yeah. you're at and have that opportunity for the next big role. And yeah. yet it's going to become the Achilles heel. And if you, if I, if we could just get people to see that and see where it fits and where it doesn't fit, man, yeah. would coaching be a whole lot easier? Well, that's the coaching job in my story. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You talked about one para paradox, which is the collective personal. You have eight of them. I kind of want to run through each of them. And I want to hit your first one, which is something I talk about all the time. This need to be confident and humble. And I think that is the source of how we judge authenticity at the end of the day. I do too. But I want to know what you think. Confident and humble. Explain this. I put this number one on the list because it's the one I was working on most. By the way, I'm sure this happens to you. As I'm writing, I'm learning. You know, yeah. I'm teaching myself. I'm preaching to myself. So in each of these paradoxes, I, I, I feel like I put my finger on something I need. But then I came up with a case study. So my case study on confident yet humble was Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney. You know, when he took that job, he admitted, I did not know what I was doing. I'd mm -hmm. managed ABC, a television network, but I didn't know. I'd never run a conglomerate that sold plush toys, theme park tickets, movie tickets. So he quickly went in and get this, started asking questions of the very people he led. He yeah. said, I to coach me up here. I need you to help me here. And it was the very humility he expressed of needing their help that made them want to lean in and help him. I mean, yeah. they want him to win because he's asking for their advice. So in the end, here's the lesson I think we learned from Bob. He said, you've got to be humble. You can't pretend to be something you're not or to know something you don't. But at the same time, you've got to be confident enough that people believe in your leadership. So here's here's the truth in a nutshell. I love, I put two columns in each one of these chapters. Your confidence makes your leadership believable. If you're not confident, people are going to think, are we going to reach the goal or not? But your humility makes your confidence believable. When you're humble, it shows, okay, I see that I'm not all that. I see that I don't get all the, I need your help and we need to do this together. It's a beautiful combination that is so winsome to teams. I think we just got to do it. Yeah. I say to people who struggle with not knowing, you know, they think they should know and they don't know. And they feel like they're weak when they say, I don't know, or they ask a question or whatever. Yeah. I say to them, in today's modern organization, the thought that you would know absolutely everything that makes this company run 
is ludicrous. If it is, you need to fire everybody else and just get on with doing the job. And of course, we know that. But when it comes to our personal leadership, man, the, the willingness to lean into that humility is just, it comes, it's a hard one story. It is. But I tell you, you're exactly right. The people we hire today are more savvy than when they've ever been. They're on social media. They probably have looked you up. Uh, you know, so I think they're thinking if you're overconfident, they're thinking, what are you smoking, Bob? You know, you're you're not that good. And that's just makes us so real and so human. And I think people want to follow humans, right? Not overconfident robots that have all the answers. Yeah. But they also don't want to follow somebody who's so humble that they say all the time, oh, really? I have no idea. I never thought mm-hmm. about what I'm doing. Okay. What do you think? That doesn't work either. It's that balancing act that's really so good. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to your second one. Um, an interesting one. Yeah. We expect leaders to be visionary, see out into the future, see everything, and by the way, have all the answers for where our strategy needs to go. We expect yeah. that of ourselves as leaders and open to the blind spots. Explain this piece. Well, when I think of blind spot, I almost always think of a negative. I don't, I don't want to keep my blind spots from ruining me. And we do. Blind spots have clearly ruined a number of people. However, As I began to study the best leaders, the ones that have really risen to the top of their industry, they actually had vision, but leveraged their blind spots, which seems like an oxymoronic idea. So you might have enjoyed this as a female, uh, Wanda, but Sarah Blakely is my case study on this one. This wonderfully, still relatively young leader, I think, at least in my eyes, she developed Spanx, really this shapewear industry, But real quick, her story is fascinating. So she comes up with this thing called shapewear, which, you know, you you know this better than I, but it's this marvelous thing that mostly women, not only women, will purchase. Well, when she came up with it, she found a a company in, in North Carolina that would build them for her, but then she needed distribution. So she ends up calling really a contact of a friend of hers, an executive at Neiman Marcus department store, and said, could I come visit you for 10 minutes? And she talked her into it. So this is a female executive. Well, Wanda, she sits down in the office and she starts talking about this Spanx thing she's developed. Within five minutes, she's realizing, I am not getting anywhere. This poor woman has listened to a hundred speeches today. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lost in a crowd. So get this, Sarah stands up. She's probably 29 at the day. Stands up and says, would you follow me? And the executive says, I beg your pardon. She says, would you follow me right now? They both get up, walk into the women's restroom. She tries on the Spanx right there in front of her. Sold. You know, she sees what a wonderful garment this is. Well, now they decide to beta test this product to, I don't know, 10 or 12, you know, Neiman Marcus stores. Sarah very wisely calls up her friends in those cities sends the money to buy out all the products in those areas. And the next thing we know, she takes off and the company, well, she's now a billionaire. Right. Here's the blind spot that I love in this story. Months later, Sarah is speaking to a group about her success. Right. In the Q&A time, someone raises their hand and says, Miss Blakely, um, how did you get someone to notice you in those big trade shows where a thousand exhibitors are sharing their wares, how did you get noticed? And of course, her response is the blind spot. She goes, trade shows? I didn't know I was supposed to go to a trade show. <laughs> she said, thank God I didn't know that. 
And the point was the very rookie smart that she had is what saved her in the end. She could have joined a crowd of others and it would have been a red ocean, red with the blood of competition. But right. she was in a blue ocean. She met one-on-one. She didn't know better. So I'll stop there. But isn't it true when we look back on our lives, it was probably the thing I didn't know that might have saved my life. And uh, so I needed a vision, but I needed some blind spots to help me get to that goal. Right. Well, it's not getting tripped by those blind spots. It's not necessarily ignoring the blind spots. It's leaning into them. Yeah. And by the way, I remember being at an event. I was speaking at this event, too. And Sarah was there in the very, very, very early days. And she did this crazy thing. She gave everybody in the audience a pair of Spanx. Oh, my gosh. You might, who care? I mean, really, what is this product? How is this going to go? But there you have it. You go home and you try it and you go, I got it. I'm done. (laughs) Again, a brilliant, you know, why not? Let's figure it out. Yeah. Okay. But it is interesting. And I think about any number of people who've taken what others might have described also as a blind spot and leveraged it to their advantage. Laura Huang, I keep citing her because her research is really important. That sometimes when you feel like you have a disadvantage, like mm-hmm. you're not being taken seriously because of a race or a gender or an age or a whatever the thing is you think, Laura's research that says calling that out, as in, I think you might not think that I would understand this because of my age, but here. So yeah. you're leveraging in another way that blind spot. So I can yeah. see visionary, committed to the vision, not letting go, and also understanding there are some blind spots, but I'm going to use them, not ignore them. I'm going to use them. That's right. In fact, it's getting accountability so you don't lose your place. And they they can help you with blind spots, people older and wiser. But I talk about rookie smarts and mm-hmm. keep and avoiding the blind spot for ruin, ruining you. And that's really what we're saying. How could we re- maintain rookie smarts in our 40s and 50s and 60s? And right. so that's a fun right. thought to me. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. I love this one, especially for senior leaders. Public commitment and yet work behind the scenes because most, especially as you get more senior, you expect that I'm going to make the public announcement. Everybody's going to get it. I got to have my team committed to the public thing and, you know, dust off my hands. Thank you very much. We're done. Let's move on. And you say no. Yeah. Well, um, the, the paradox here that I loved was leaders balancing visibility with invisibility. And I think there is a place for both. Um, but I am not speaking here of the absentee leader, you know, right. who's who want to go to the meeting anymore, or he wants to avoid conflict or whatever. But my case study here, just to get the ball rolling, was Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King. From 1955 to 1963, he was extremely visible in this in the civil rights movement. He led the marches, protests, the sit-ins, the boycotts. He even got thrown in prison 29 times, some of them on purpose. So he's setting an example. Everybody could say, he's not just telling me, he's showing me. What I noticed in the 60s, after the I Have a Dream speech, it's as though he recognizes my days might be numbered, and I want to make sure that others are ready to step up and step in when I'm not there. So he purposely doesn't go to some meetings, and uh, young John Lewis calls him up, Dr. King, we need you here. There's a meeting. He goes, I know it. You know what to say, John. You go ahead and say it knowing that a young John Lewis would have deferred to him, Dr. Martin Luther King in the meeting, 
Right. And I just love the fact that he was able to sense when do they need me to be there? When do they need me to not be there? So sometimes we mentor with our presence and sometimes we mentor with our absence. So, yeah. True. And how many times have we seen somebody who who undermines a confidence, yeah. visibility, the capability ultimately in other people's eyes of a young protege by always being in that meeting. I mean, think about client engagements that if you were always there with every single client engagement, your client has no chance other than to imprint on you and no one else. That's so so true. Yeah. And and you know what? Sometimes our problem is we feel threatened by that young protege who may have a little bit more talent than we do. We need to be emotionally secure enough to say, I want her to step in. She will be She'll be standing on my shoulders not 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 too long from now, and I need to make sure I raise her up. Yeah. Well, and we do it sometimes for overprotection. We don't want to throw them in too uh, early. We don't want them to feel intimidated. We don't. You know, there's a whole host of reasons that we behave in that way. But I yeah, love yeah. that balance between the both the public and behind the scenes, ah. and the visible and the invisible. So, if somebody's struggling with this one. Being vi- knowing when to be visible, knowing when to be invisible. Do you have advice on what to do? Yeah. In the book, I, I even have a list there of kind of knowing. Uh, I would say quite simply, Wanda, it would be, uh, do the people under me in my department know enough that they could do this presentation, for instance? So I don't, I'm not worried about their ignorance. They know enough. They've watched me do it a number of times. I'm just coming up with one example here. Um in fact, they could finish my sentences. And sometimes on my team, they do that, you know. Um, now I need to say, why am I still here? Shouldn't I be replacing myself? So, of course, the oxymoronic thing here is at first you want to be irreplaceable, but all leaders really ought to be going, I want to be replaceable right. by, by right. good people. So there's some simple steps that we can read and go, uh, I need to get my check my ego at the door and and, right. uh, and get out of the way. Yeah. I remember a senior person, a very senior person, at one of my financial services firms talking about somebody I was coaching and of that person a little bit anxious about giving away, in this case, her role and responsibility and was she going to become expendable? And he just like threw his arms up in the air. It's like, really? Have you seen any limit of problems around here that need to be solved? That's right. Get rid of those. There's a plenty more. To- it's so true. You do. You just said a mouthful. I'm so glad you did. And I don't mean to monopolize this, but no, please. We're, we're so silly to think that we'll run out of problems to solve or people to serve. And, you know, oh my gosh, we'll be irrelevant now. I I find the people that are secure enough to, to find those mentees and those protégés uh, let's face it, success without a successor is a failure. So we need to be stepping out. And then Lord knows there's going to be all new th- mountains to conquer and, and and problems to solve. So I love that very much. All right. Let's go on to the next one, um, which is another one I love, that we want our leaders to be convicted and firm about those convictions and uh-huh. kind of non-wavering and committed and all uh-huh. that stuff. And at the same time, we want them to be open. Yeah. Yeah. Open to new ideas in particular. So help us understand this one and how it works out. I would say this is the most difficult for me to practice, this, okay. this paradox. So it's stubborn and open-minded. Um, so I think I am safe to say, listeners, that 
a leader will will just get thrown off track if he or she is not stubborn. You got to be stubborn about a few things. And one is your mission. You know, the obstacles will stop you if you're not stubborn. But in today's world of constant change, we'll also get stopped if we're not open-minded. So the case study I selected, there were several I could have selected, but but it was Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. We've all eaten a chicken sandwich at one time in our lives, I think. But uh, when I interviewed the executives at Chick-fil-A, and I, by the way, I did meet Truett 27 years ago. But um, when I met with the executives, they all said something similar, Wanda. They said Truett was the most stubborn man I've ever met and the most open-minded man I've ever met. And I said, how did he do that? So I'll just reduce it to the bare minimum. This chapter was so fun to learn and write. He was stubborn about his core. There were a handful of values and principles. He was a principled-centered leader. And by the way, listeners, can I interrupt myself and say, if you don't know the principles that you lead by, push pause, stop right now, and figure out how you could become a principled-centered leader. Stephen Covey wrote a great book years ago, The Principled-Centered Leader. When I served under John Maxwell, principled-centered leader, you could predict how he was going to act just knowing the seven or eight principles, okay? So that was what he was stubborn about. And by the way, when we think about a Chick-fil-A restaurant, don't we think closed on Sunday, it's my pleasure, really good food, you know, those kinds of things. But he was open-minded on everything else. This guy, Truett Cathy, at 92, was opening a new restaurant, and it wasn't Chick-fil-A. It was called Truett's Luau. It was a Hawaiian-themed restaurant with Hawaiian food and decor and music, and he's 92. I just want to be breathing at 92. (laughs) But it was open to what could we do, just think what we could imagine here. So this one in today's particular climate may be the most important. i got to be stubborn and know where I need to be stubborn but I've got to be open-minded on almost everything else. Yeah. I, I just want to backtrack for just a moment for people who don't know what Chick-fil-A is because you've not, don't have one in your country or in your region. It is a fried chicken sandwich. It is also a lovely uh, food. In It's a sandwich and it's lovely done, but they have several principles at the restaurant for when they are not closed up. They're closed on Sunday because they think that's good for their workers. Yeah. And they also are required, I think it is, to say thank you when they're giving you the check. And if they don't, the meal is free. So it's kind of this, it's an interesting principle by which they operate, just to underscore your story. But to come back to this one, um, you remind, your story reminds me of another CEO I worked with um, who was adamant about a goal the team was going to reach. I mean, adamant non-movable, non-negotiable. I don't care what happened, what disaster came through. And there were several in the year of this goal, two years of this goal with his team. No, we won't move it, but totally flexible on how. Yeah. Love that. Completely open on the options. And it's, I think the sum of what you're describing here, Tim, is that we figure out something on which we're not moving Mm -hmm. and we have some flexibility on some other things. Yeah, I love that. And manage by objective. The objective is king. How you get there, do whatever you got to do. Yeah, I love, I yeah, love like that. Boundaries, of course. I think, and I always think to talk to leaders that you have to be clear about what your boundaries are. So yeah. on this one, if somebody wanted to know more about their principles, I mean, you referenced two books. Do you have a quick exercise on understanding what your core principles are as a leader? 
Yeah, I do. And I even talk about that in the in this particular chapter. I would just say the simple action step on this one, a cu- couple of simple action, action steps. When I figured out mine, and by the way, I've got mine, I'm holding it, my, listeners can't see this, but I've got my, my six, but um, I would say I even just listened to myself talk for two or three weeks and then watched myself act. So I want to come up with something that I want to live by aspirationally, but even just looking, I guess I really value that. I wouldn't be talking this way unless I did. So leaders, I would encourage you, uh, do an audit, a personal audit, and then do the do a little exercise we encourage in our office. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Ask the people around you, what do you think I value? Well, I listened to you for two weeks now, and here's what you keep talking about. So those would be very doable, doable action steps where someone could go, I think I realize now what my core is. Yeah. I love that idea of asking people who've worked with you for, let's say, six months to a year and say, what do you think I really believe based on what I always say and what I always talk about? And I think if you phrase it in an open-ended way, people will be intimidated to actually tell you the truth. Okay. Um, Another one I love, excellence. Strive for excellence. We, I mean, we know that we got to be top performers. We got da 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 da. I want the best in class. And how many corporate mottos do you see with that one? Yeah. At the right. same time, I need to forgive people's mistakes. How yeah. do I reconcile those two? Yeah, this one also is equally rare. Um, so the way I word it in the book is: these um, amazing leaders model both high standards and gracious forgiveness. So I actually experienced this myself working for John Maxwell right out of college. Uh, There were a couple of mistakes I made that I thought and even told my wife, I may be gone today, you know, (laughs) that sort of thing. (laughs) But I sat down with John, who was this hyper excellent man, I mean, who had standards. And, you know, there was no hint of you might get let go. It was, all right, let's talk about what we learned and let's go do it better. So my... My example on this one is really a strange one. Uh, I'll admit it, but it was none other than Harriet Tubman. So <laughs> for people that live in America will remember Harriet Tubman got famous during America's Civil War in the 19th century from 1860 to 1865. Um, she led the Underground Railroad. So she led people who lived in slavery to freedom. 300 people were able to escape slavery and march into the North where they where they were free. Here's where the standards and the forgiveness come. She was a very radical leader. In fact, some of her um, uh, behaviors would not be acceptable today. It was such an extreme situation. Uh, But she obviously had high standards, like you had to be utterly silent some days. If you had a baby with you, you had to cover that baby's mouth because we might get caught and we're all dead then, you know, that sort of thing. But, But the point was, high standards, standards so high that others thought, I don't know if we can even do this. But she said, I'll tell you what, we won't make it if we don't do this. Mm-hmm. So she convinced them to match her standards. But then when there was somebody that in an effort to meet them, missed them, somehow made a mistake or didn't meet the high standards, there was an incredible gracious spirit that they hadn't seen in this radical leader up until then. So when I think about the stories that I know, and I list them in this chapter where, um, you know, the original uh, 
the the most famous CEOs at some of these companies that you know an employee made a million dollar mistake and they went into the office thinking I will I'm about to let go they go no I just spent a million dollars you know learning let's let's you know I can't let you go now that's the spirit in which uh, in which we go so if you don't mind I want to share a metaphor that I think informs me all the time. So I do teach leadership with images. Habitudes are images that form leadership, habits, and attitudes. The image on this one is one that I call the Golden Gate Paradox. So the Golden Gate Bridge, for those that may not know, maybe don't live in San Francisco, California, uh, is a wonderful bridge built across the bay. And it's called the Golden Gate Bridge. It was built, or at least started to be built, in 1932. Hmm. So that was right in the midst of the Great Depression. So there were loads of people that were out of work all over the country, but particularly in that city. So they had men lining up to be bridge builders. They had no experience as engineers, no experience at bridge building. And so they were endangered. I mean, they were men, men were dropping from the bridge as they're trying to bolt this thing together. So one day, one of the workers, I'm just going to simplify the terms, went to the foreman and said, is there any chance you could put a net underneath us as we build? Well, the foreman's first two thoughts were, if I put a net in, I'm going to spend $300,000 I do not have. And that was a lot of money back then. It's still a lot of money today. And we will not finish, not only not on budget, we won't finish on time either because I'm going to have to spend months you know, installing this net and then moving it along the bridge as you guys move along the bridge. But thankfully, this leader, this foreman made the right choice. He installed a net and the paradox is, Wanda, they finished on time and on budget. And here's how they did it. When he put the net in, the workers were not now worried about surviving. They were worried about succeeding. The work sped up. They got it done earlier than they thought, saved money. You can see now how it works, but it's an oxymoronic paradoxical thing. So that's a picture of if I offer a safety net for my people. Now, I don't offer safety net for the people doing a mediocre job. I'm sorry, we don't do that. But if you're trying to meet the standard, you've done everything you can do, but you've missed it. I've got a safety net for you and I'm offering it every single time you try and fail. So that's a great, if I think about that's a great image. I've got this standard, this budget this criteria, this objective, this product we're taking to market, whatever it is, and not letting go of that one. But yeah. if you're really pushing towards that, and I can see that you're pushing, perhaps pushing in your way, not in my way, by the way, um, then I'm going to create a safety net that keeps you from having to worry about your own security in the push for that. It's great. Yep. Great, yeah. great, great example. There's one more, um, uh, Tim, that we're just going to touch on really briefly, which is the teach versus learn. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's probably been said so often that it's cliche, but I believe we need to be lifelong learners. So in today's world, the leader of a department or a company or an organization has to be a teacher because we're constantly reteaching the new realities that we face. But we need to stay, if we're going to do that, in a learning posture at all times. So Angela Arantz, who who took over as CEO of Burberry in 2006, that it was a dying brand. And she said, I know I've got to teach, but I've got to gather my youngest employees here and be a learner. How are we going to reach the millennials and the younger ones? And uh, to make a long story short, she practiced reverse mentoring. 
And she was a teacher and a learner. And of course, the brand doubled and it was just incredible. But it was teacher learner that saved the day. Right. We both know of many examples from CEOs who've said, okay, right, I don't know what I think I need to know here, and have decided that they were going to go learn from any number of people. And the ones I'm thinking about are folks who have gone to Warren Buffett and said, what would it take you to want to invest in my company? And he lays it out for them. Okay, and then I got to go learn how to do it. It's a really cool example. Tim, what a great, so the, the book is called The Eight Paradoxes of Leadership. The eight are being confident and being humble, being visionary, taking advantages of blind spots, having public commitment, but operating behind the scenes, meaning visible, invisible, being firm in your conviction, stubborn, and also open-minded, being personal and focus on the personal and focus on the collective, having excellence and still striving for forgiveness and both teaching and learning. And I think you have a last one, which is about dominate the era and also having your ideas endure, which we didn't talk about. Fabulous book. So Tim, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about this new paradox for a little bit of time. When you're managing, you're trying to manage now with multiple generations with competing needs and what that paradox looks like. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Dr. Tim Elmore, CEO and founder of Growing Leaders. And you can learn more about him and his organization at growingleaders.com, based in Atlanta. 35 books, I have to say. The one we just talked about are the eight paradoxes of leadership. 
And I think, you know, Tim, we might add another 20 paradoxes, but I think getting <laughs> your head around this notion of the paradoxes where you're supposed to do this and its polar opposite this and understanding which one where is just essential to being a truly excellent leader. And one of those paradoxes is ultimately, how do I meet the needs of all the people in my organization? Needs slash expectations while trying to be fair and also try to drive performance. Okay. And I, it's daunting because of the generational differences. There's loads of other differences we could talk about, but it's your new book, A New Kind of Diversity, focused on the generational differences that I want to spend a little time with. So you talk about builders, boomers, Gen X, which don't have another name, millennials, which used to be called Gen Y, we now call them millennials, and Gen Z. And that's the order from oldest to youngest. What I want is a kind of quick description. What characterizes each of those? If you Yeah, good question. I'll try to be brief, but each one is fascinating to me because they represent a tone to a demographic. So this is not psychology. We all have unique personalities to our lives, but it's sociology. There is a tone in time as we move through history so the builder generation would be the oldest that might still be at work. They're past retirement age, but some are still healthy at 72 and they're still mowing the lawn or maybe they're the CEO of the company. The builders were called builders because they built so much out of so little. They were born between 1929 and 1945, my mom and dad's generation. So resilient, resourceful. Think about the Great Depression. Think about World War II. They were the builders. The baby boomers came next, and they were called baby boomers because nine months after World War II was over, there was a boom of babies. This is a biology lesson now. But 76.4 million people born in 18 years. It was a boom of babies, and it was a time of expansion, not depression. Okay. After the baby boomers come Gen X, but Wanda, there was, there was actually another title that was first given to Gen X. X was what stuck with them, but they were first called baby busters by social scientists. And the reason they were is because the first year of their, their generation's existence was the public introduction of the birth control pill. So instead of the boom, it was a bust. It was a drop. In fact, if you add on top of that Roe v. Wade in 1973, you have a shrinking population, not a booming. So it was a, a little bit time of more, we're in the shadow of the boomers. There was the Vietnam War, the OPEC gas crisis, the Watergate scandal. The millennials are the 80s and 90s kids. They're called millennials because they'll spend their entire adult life in the new millennium. And they're generally a generation of confidence as young professionals. But now Gen Z would be the youngest uh, team member. They're um, uh, new, young professional, college, high school uh, they're young adults, and they would be a very anxious generation, by and large. The smartphone came out when they were growing up, and it caused angst and overwhelming information coming at them at 13. You know, it's just scary. They're they're not perpetrators of this. They're victims of this reality. But I think they're a wonderful generation when they join a team and can overcome some of the angst they have. But those are the five generations that might be working together. They each bring strength to the team if we'll, if we'll be fascinated by that strength instead of frustrated. Yeah. And what I hear all the time is the frustration. And I pick whichever generation and they're frustrated with the folks ahead of them and they're frustrated with the folks behind them. 
And I get so aggravated with the judgment that comes, you know, the entitlement language, which is not helpful. I doesn't, you know, this doesn't help much at all or the lazy or the unwilling to commit or the whole bunch of stuff. And we won't stop and look at what is driving that set of behavior. So hit the strengths. The strengths of the builders presumably are because they're willing to dig in and find a way out of few resources. Yeah. Yeah. So the builders would be that resilient generation. They bring, if I can use this adjective, sage wisdom. My gosh, they've been in the workforce five, six decades, you know, crazy. Um, sage wisdom, wonderful insight, and often timeless insight because they've seen what works and what doesn't work over time. The boomers, they would offer stories and stories and stories. I'm a baby boomer. I have loads of stories. Just stay with me long enough. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, often coaching. Some of the best coaches are the ones that are maybe 62 or 65 and, and they've just got good coaching. Gen Xers, oh my gosh, they bring contrarian insights so they can see what could go wrong. And I mean that in a good way. Before we start this project, let's look at the upside and the downside. Um, so I think we need that desperately. Our team has some Gen Xers that are brilliant at making sure we cross all the T's and dot all the I's before we get started. Millennials often bring hope and confidence and idealism. And while that may be seen negatively by a 55-year-old, don't we need that energy on the team? Of course we do. I don't want to be without it. I want that 32-year-old to have that energy. Um, and then finally, Gen Z, the data shows us they bring a hacker mindset. And I don't just mean that in terms of technology. They are hacking almost any system they get into to find out how it works and make it work for us. Hmm. But then they bring, uh, Wanda, an entrepreneurial spirit. Did you know that 70% of public high school students today want to be an entrepreneur? Over 300,000 new businesses have been started in the first seven months of this year. I mean, that's, and it's not all Gen Z, but there is a spirit of entrepreneurial. You're an entrepreneur. You know this spirit that we need. And can I just say one more thing? Wasn't our country, at least the country you and I live in, America, it was built on entrepreneurship. You know, we experimented with a country in 1776 and it worked. So think about the value each one of these brings. And if we could capitalize on it, and be fascinated instead of frustrated. Yeah, I think that I think what's one of the highlights of the book is it help you help people understand how this generation came to be the way it is. Yeah. So if you think about the life events that they shared through that history, you think about the parenting advice their parents were reading at the time. Yeah. You think about their communication with each other and how that propelled them in one place forward or another. Um and then that helps you see what how you might characterize that generation as well as where the strengths are. Um, I One of my favorite stories, I'm sure you've heard this one, and you may even have it in your book, and I missed it, Tim, is millennials are always accused of you know expecting a trophy for showing up. Yeah. And they say, oh, we didn't ask for those trophies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were the ones out there, parents, that were giving us the trophy. You were the ones that were buying them and insisting that we have them. Hold on a second before you say, I'm entitled. It's, it's just, so true. We were the ones. In fact, I know a, a young boy that gave the trophy back to his dad. And he goes, this doesn't mean anything. So you're right. We were the guilty ones trying to build their self-esteem out of right. a award. Yeah. So we're now right-sizing that. And I think we we need to for their sake, if not ours. 
Yeah, and each has its will have its challenges as every other generation has had their challenges and we'll have to learn to come through those for sure. Okay, so advice. You're sitting down with a leader of a team that's got at least four generations almost guaranteed. What's your advice to them? And let's start with the one that I think is the hardest one. You're a Gen Xer, anxious to be in the kind of, and frustrated with how long it's taken you to get there. You have a boomer on the team, some millennials on the team, and some Gen Zs on the team. What's your advice to that Gen Xer? Wow. Well, probably that deserves an hour. I'm going to give it a minute here, but um, it's a great question because I think that scenario, there's a million scenarios like that. Um, What I would recommend, and this is just me, but I would recommend as I relate to the boomer who's slightly older, I would make sure I would launch with humility, even though I might know more than that boomer. And that's why I've got my management position. I want to make sure I'm uh, acknowledging you have so much experience that we could use here. I'm going to need to lean on you. Uh, Kind of that confidence and humility we talked about earlier. But then toward the others, I want to um, maybe launch some activities such as, um, in the book, I talk about ditch the niche. So isn't it true? We kind of get niches at the workplace with our own people, you know, 40-somethings, 50-somethings. I want to ditch the niche and put modern elders with young geniuses. I think every workplace has those. Mm -hmm. So. And we're and we're we're mixing it up and we're talking about how do we market to our people. I did this with my latest book, Millennials. What would you say? Xers, how about you? Boomers, how about you? Ditch the niche is such a great activity to play where we force ourselves with people who are not like us. But Wanda, my favorite activity is one that I'm practicing right now. Okay. Reverse mentoring. Okay. Reverse mentoring is when a seasoned veteran at the workplace one of the older two generations, um, meets with a younger person, maybe even a rookie, uh, and you swap stories. You always find common ground when you swap stories. But then both sides take a shot at mentoring the other. So the older might mentor the younger, and here's how to succeed at this workplace. I know a few things. But then they trade hats, so to speak. And the younger might go, here's how we can monetize the latest app I just got on my phone, you know, TikTok or whatever, you know. And both sides are humbly listening to the other. So I recommend in the book, speak as if you believe you're right, but listen as if you believe you're wrong. Mm-hmm. That's been a game changer with my young adult children. So um, di- ditch the niche and reverse mentoring are game changers. I meet with Andrew on our team that's 30 years younger than me and Cam, who's 40 years younger than me. And I learn every single time. So I'll stop there, but that's what I would recommend as quick and easy activities. So speak as if you believe you're right and listen as if you believe you're wrong. Yeah. I think that, with that, talk about dichotomies, talk about paradoxes. Right there we have it in the kind of summarize the whole thing in so many ways. Yeah. It is, it's, um, I think one of the challenges in working this way is we get um, bias perceptions. And I start labeling people with words that are unhelpful. So any advice about how to both recognize the labels I've given and jettisoning them? Yeah. Early in the book, I talk about how easy it is to stereotype. Uh, What's ironic is none of us want to be stereotyped, but we certainly are free to do that with other people. So in my mind, a quick definition of stereotyping that makes me avoid it better 
is it's a mental shortcut. Okay. I'm not doing good thinking. I'm not doing deep thinking. I'm just taking shortcuts on those Gen Z, 22-year-olds, kids today. Haven't we said kids today forever? So I would say avoid stereotyping. But um, how I recommend doing it is what Brene Brown says. She's the Houston researcher that says it's hard to hate people up close. So I don't think anybody listening hates anybody. At least I hope you don't. But um, I need to get close to those people that I so easily stereotype. And once I get to know them, I realize, well, of course you drew that conclusion. Look at your story, you know? Um, And I now can, if I can say it, love them in a right way and appreciate them and empathize with them. Oh, I'm going to be a better leader when I, um, I call this a leg I have to stand on, A-L-E-G. I ask questions, listen well, empathize, and then I guide them to where they need to go. So that would be my way of combating the stereotyping and the labeling that we often do. So listen, ask questions, then I got, engage with them, and then guide. Yeah, ask questions. Okay. When that when I ask, they feel important. Okay. When I listen, they feel heard. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to feel heard today. Yeah. Empathize. If I empathize, they feel empathize. understood. Yeah. And then I've earned my right without even a badge on to guide, okay. to guide them as a parent, as a leader, as a coach. Now I'm in good shape to really relationally spend some currency in this relationship. I think that piece of advice, ask questions, listen, empathize, and guide, but in that order, like you don't earn your right to go to the next step until you've actually genuinely passed go on the first one. It's so true. In any relationship, whether it's a generational or any kind of relationship, that that would be would serve people incredibly well. Okay, Tim, I can't. Uh, I've got just a couple minutes. Let me ask my favorite question: What takes you out of your comfort zone, and how do you manage? Wow, I think it's when me at my age uh, does something new. Um. You know how as we ate, now you're a young whippersnapper, Wanda, but I happen to be a dinosaur. Yes. So at 63, well, I have a mentor in my life that asked me this question. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Mm-hmm. Fewer and fewer as I get older because I've done so much. Yeah. But but I'm telling you, if I will every week of my life do something I've never done before, it keeps me out of my comfort zone keeps me thinking new thoughts, which is exactly what you're fostering here. And uh, it keeps me young. So that would be what I would say to to that question. Fantastic. I love the advice. Awesome. Um, You have a lovely test on the diversity differences that I just finished. I thought it was fascinating to test my own knowledge of how well I know these generations. Where do people find that um, link? You can go to newdiversitybook.com newdiversitybook.com. And you can find not only the book, but you can find this free assessment, 41 questions where you can see I'm pretty good with Xers, but not so good with Gen Z or whatever. And it's a really fun one to spark conversation and uh, and learning. Yeah. yeah. And as I said to Tim at the beginning of this, I just did that test out of genuine curiosity. And it turns out I think I'm better with millennials and Gen Z than I am with my own generation. So I'm going to have to go back and do a little work on that one with my peer set. <laughs> 
Wanda, you're keeping up with the times. I love it. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. All right. My guest today is Dr. Tim Elmore. His company is called Growing Leaders, growingleaders.com. The two books are about the eight paradoxes of leadership, as well as the new kind of diversity where you talk about generational differences. My watchword, my takeaway through everything we've talked about, including the generational differences, the relationship issues, is that there are opposites that we have got to keep in mind and balance between. I need to ask questions. I need to listen. Then I can guide. I need to a whole host of this and that. Be visible and be invisible. Um, be curious and be stubborn. There's just so many that we can say, and I think we have to, that is the secret for advancing. So Tim, thank you for being a guest today. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. And please like us on your favorite podcast provider. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.